Welcome to the Psych Experience. Hello everyone, welcome back to Psych Experience, the podcast for those who love psychology and psychiatry. Dr. Nadi, today we're going to talk about a topic that I wish we had recorded before the interview with Dr. Patari. Uh, very straightforward. Why do we need guidelines? Perfect. Let's do it. Now, from my perspective, and as a mental health uh, service, let's put it this way, user backslash consumer, uh, the concept of a guideline seems counterintuitive because a guideline suggests uniform treatments for people experiencing absolutely different things, right? Perfect. So, okay. So, so you're talking about in individualized medicine, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, so... All right, so I've been trying to explain this thing f to patients for a long, long while, you know, more, more or less unsuccessfully. <laughs> so, so, so when people share their concerns about wanting a treatment that is individualized, because they are unique and their stories are unique, mm -hmm. so consequentially their brains are unique, the, the idea is very, very tempting for a psychiatrist to think, you know, like the idea is amazing, seductive, and if you ask a patient if he or she would like an individualized, individualized treatment, meaning the right medication for him or her, mm -hmm. the patient would say, I prefer that. Me too. For psychiatrists, me too. You know, we are like, all want the right thing for the right problem. Right. However, while we have some treatments in the whole world of medicine that are fairly targeted, fairly targeted to individual characteristics like specific receptors on a given cancer tumor or monoclonal antibodies targeting specific molecules with autoimmune diseases. We have nothing in psychiatry that operates in that order of precision. When you say nothing, you mean like really nothing? <laughs> it's like nothing. The, 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 how, do you, how do you cope with that? Like how <laughs> It's very frustrating because here's the thing, you, you know, and I, I never saw that as a problem mm -hmm. until I started to present because, you know, I, I'm going through the truth training and saying, you know, in guidelines and research and, you know, what it worked for. Because the research, what is research? It's like, okay, we threw this molecule at a thousand people versus nothing at a thousand people. And, you know, randomized controlled trials have, have a lot of limitations. The, the, um, let's say that if we don't have financial biases with it, it would be a great thing. You know, like probably nearly as close to perfection as we could have. Mm -hmm. But, um, but um, we don't have more than that. And I thought that was okay, this is great. We have all this information. You know, I'm practicing an art that mostly based on evidence and I think the patients will appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But then when I found this, when I started working, I realized there's, because in psychotherapy, you don't have that problem. Um, not to the same extent, but w when you start working with the patients in psychiatry and, and you try to convey that idea, thinking they're gonna say, oh yeah, that's amazing, mm -hmm. right? Um, you, what you find is no, you know, I want what's right for me. And I said, buddy, you're tripping. So, <laughs> so if, if let's, let's give you a, a more solid example here. So if you meet okay. diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder, then you may respond to any antidepressant. We don't have knowledge regarding what in the antidepressant is the right one for you. If you have insomnia, there are meds that could address the insomnia mm -hmm. and some recommendations and therapies that should come first. And then you have MDD with bad insomnia. Now you can choose an antidepressant that has sedative properties mm -hmm. and, and sort of hit two things in a sort of a, with one, uh, what we kill two 
something with a rock or something. Two, two rabbits with one. I don't know. Sounds, politi- don't know, it's, sounds it's, politically incorrect nowadays to kill any animals. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> kill animals, yeah. Yeah. so you can, you could choose an antidepressant with sedative properties. Mm-hmm. And that's about the degree of personalization you're going to find in, psych- in psychiatry. Right, but won't people respond differ- differently uh, to different medications? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but all attempts to target meds based on individual characteristics, as opposed to diagnostic ones, are unfortunately stemming from magical thinking or fallacious conclusions. Why not have in- individualized prescribing then? Because we don't have the knowledge for it. We don't, we don't know what's the difference between two people um, that report or present with virtually the same syndrome, even though the syndrome is highly different. You know, like if you, if you take MDD and all the possible combinations of those symptoms, you have more than 800 different, um, 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 you know, like soup of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know why one will respond to sertraline and the other will not. We have no clue at all in attempts to reach that level, either with phenomenology or genes or whatever, so far fell short of consistent results, unfortunately. Right, so I assume that's how guidelines join the, join the scenario, right? They, they fill that gap. So guidelines, as you have seen before, are a mix of reasoning involving philosophical medical principles apply, applied over available data. Mm-hmm. If you remember, one of the rationale for treatment choices is the risk-benefit ratio. If we take the treatment of depression into account, the best, most efficacious treatment available is ECT. Right. Because ECT has a particular set of side effects involving cognition, it's not considered the first choice. So the first choice is a balance between what hurts less and what has worked for most people. Now, what have worked for most people is hardly what we would see as a personalized choice, Mm -hmm. but is the only choice we have available. But if we make, here's the thing, if we make a transposition to cancer treatment, if a doctor tells you to make a choice between the medication that works the best for the type of cancer you have versus the one he feels or believes it will be better, now you can see some clearly, much more, now you can see much more clearly what what kind of choice you would make. Mm -hmm. So if that's the kind of data that we have, why patient medications uh, regimens are so seemingly random and vary so much from patient to patient we could uh, we could consider a few factors for that one so the first one is okay let's okay so let's go with this the, the first one will be a snapshot of, of a patient medication regimen mm-hmm. and, and that that what when you see that package of things it doesn't tell you most of the time what other meds the patient has tried and the path he walked to reach that. All absurdity, all absurdity is discounted, like we saw before regarding polypharmacy, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, Second, because, say, amongst antidepressants, we don't have anyone who really sticks out regarding efficacy. They all work about the same. So the recs are not usually that precise, and, and different providers have different preferences in that regard, meaning what SSRI to choose for first treatment of a major depressive disorder, not pretty much any. As you progress on that path, meaning, okay, this didn't work, what options comes next? You still have plenty of options to choose from. So even if you're following guidelines, there will be a fair amount of variation because the guideline is not like a rule. It's a, hey, man, maybe consider this, right? Mm-hmm. And that variation is still sound as long as choices are being made with the with some principles in mind, like the, the balance between risk and benefits, side effect profile, stuff like that. 
there is, unfortunately, the fact that some guidelines are more biased towards uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry interests or biased towards different interests of that sort, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one given guideline may say, like, go for the candy that this store makes, and the other one's going to say, no, 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 this candy is better. <laughs> and, and there's research showing that, you know, mm-hmm. um, when they compare it into the press, and it's usually the company that sponsors the comparison wins, uh, surprisingly. You're kidding me? Unfortunately not. Oh, my God. Our guidelines do have heavy pharma biases, but, but you can read it through it. It's, it's a bit of a work, and, 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 but reading through it, you still work better with that data than guessing or just throwing meds at random. And, and this is more of a webinar topic um, we could have, you know, uh, consider. Um, but, but here's the thing. You find a recommendation. Right, so I like using British stuff like NICE guidelines and Modsley. Then you find a recommendation for Medication X. Then you, the next thing you do is you check the date of, that the patent expired for that medication. Mm-hmm. Go there and Google Medication X, patent expiration, FDA, something like that. If, if, the rec, if the recommendation for that medication is made after the expiration of the patent, even though it may include data from where the medication was patented, you know you're looking at a recommendation that hopefully was strong enough to survive time. And at this point, no one is feeling their pockets to include that guy right now because the pharmaceutical company is not going to say, hey, sertraline is great while there's other freaking, they're not going to put money into it while there's another 10 companies making other versions of sertraline. Right. Any more examples or factors that you can think of? So this is where real problems start. So what factors play in our choices? So one thing is that It's really evident, unfortunately, that choices are frequently influenced by three factors. Intuition, unsystematic clinical experience, and a pathophysiological rationale. That's how medical philosophy refers to it. And I'm going to explain what pathophysiological rationale means in a few. Mm -hmm. So we we could just skip intuition as, you know, to a fair extent, is self-explanatory. I mean, we could read it under behaviorism, behaviorism lens, but... Uh, I think it's too nerdish. The, the, <laughs> yeah. Now, the unsystematized clinical experience goes as follows. Let's say a doctor or an NP are treating a refractory depression. He or she has been through a few trials with antidepressants, added this, added that. Finally, the patient responds to a combination of an antidepressant and any given antipsychotic or dopamine antagonist or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Then, boom, the patient says, hey, man, I'm doing better. Now, it's not too far-fetched to expect that the same provider will bring that combination into play much earlier in the game in the future, even though it was a Hail Mary in this case. It was right. the last-ditch effort, crazy combination. Likelihood is it's going to come earlier in the game. And in this case, with antipsychotic, earlier and maybe unnecessarily having very heavy side effects. Mm-hmm. If you have a chance to read a, a book called Scientist Practitioners from Hay Barlow, uh, Hayes Barlow and Gray, you're going to find a good argument as to why our observations and why experience doesn't add to your clinical skills or resolution rates. And, and that's the reason for that, like on a summary, is because we're pretty much terrible at keeping tab of our successes and failures, as well as the fact that measuring how patients are actually doing. Here's a practical example from, from today. Mm-hmm. So I cover some inpatient units at times and, you know, weekends and stuff. And I frequently, I see, and I see geriatric patients with dementia and behavioral problems. And they're frequently prescribed Depakote. Now, there's no evidence at all that Depakote has any benefit with behavioral issues associated with dementia. 
and, 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 I, and there's, it goes far than that. Recommendation actually says don't use it. Don't use it. Still, the use is widespread. Now, the prescriber is well intended. He's trying to keep the patient from being aggressive, you know, let's say to uh, leave the hospital and, you know, hopefully live in a better place. If a nursing home is better than a hospital, I don't know, we could cover that another <laughs> time. Overall, it seems that we're doing a very poor job with our elderly, but th that's another talk. But, but here, what happens with a lot of Jerry psych units, you get a patient, and, 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 and this is how I advise everyone working a psych Jerry patient, do nothing for a few days, because mm. you're going to see a lot of people will improve spontaneously. Mm. If in those days that a patient is improving spontaneously, because you didn't wait, because there's a pressure to keep, you know, do stuff, so you have to be able to justify that because insurance companies are pretty much ruining medicine. Ruining medicine. Um, now, if you start a medication for a patient that was going to improve no matter what, mm -hmm. right? He was cranky that day, God knows. And then you see the improvement, you say, actually, Depakote is a good medication. Despite all recommendations, nobody, it's not, mm -hmm. right? And that's what we call unsystematized observation. Gotcha. All the related factors may come from patient reports. So let's assume you have depression and anxiety, and let's uh, leave aside for a second the overlap when it comes to symptoms. And, and just take it as face value, because yeah, MDD and anxiety are virtually the same disorder. Now, because of whatever reasons, I give you a feel-good medication, right? I give you a benzodiazepine or stimulant or whatever. Now, just to make a parallel with this example, alcohol, cocaine, opium, they're all prescription drugs. They were all prescription drugs at some point, all of them. We prescribed them. At some point, they all came from doctor's pens. Mm -hmm. Now, take, take into account how we understand and define major depressive disorder. Is alcohol an antidepressant? Is cocaine a proper, acceptable antidepressant? Yeah, you feel happy as you're high, you know, and then there's a crush, and there's no, there's no, it's not sustainable. So opioids like methadone and suboxone were already examined, you know, by the way, and, and, and even though patients report improvement in mood, if they compare the presentation to when they were like all day hunting their fixes and going through all kinds of withdrawals and highs, um, and people say, oh, my mood has been better, and then people, let's see if methadone and suboxone are actually antidepressant. Well, they are not. Mm -hmm. um, what they are doing is just removing a factor that affects mood and anxiety that are daily withdrawals and, you know, all associated limitations in life. So, sorry, back to it. Mm. <laughs> I see yeah. you looking at me. <laughs> you are depressed, and I prescribe you a medication that is a feel-good medication, say lorazepam. Now, remember, lorazepam binds to GABA-A GABA receptors, which is the same target and with virtually the same results of alcohol. You will not improve with your depression, but will come back to me and say what? Some version of, I like this stuff. Right. So let's just assume for a second that we will finish this episode and go have shots and a cigar. Okay, you, you mean it like theoretically? Because yeah. Because I'm, I'm so I can't, down to do that right I now. can't today, no. Oh, come on, man. So we will both, we will both feel good but will it have a lasting impact on our mood? Will it help me to get out of bed in my freaking leg day tomorrow and hit the gym? No, <laughs> it will not. But you're not going to tell me that it feels bad to have some shots and some nicotine. So now you go back to your doctor and say, I like this stuff. All right, so now the doctor becomes more inclined to prescribe it. But liking something is far from what we're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. when we're trying to treat mood disorders. 
Okay, that's a that's a lot of that's a lot of info. Do, do you have any more examples that you can apply to this? So we were talking about suboxone methadone a second ago, and, and another factor came back to my mind. So many times, out of good intentions and what seems to be by all measures logical thinking, mm -hmm. a provider may reach a conclusion that failed to prove itself. So, for example, bear with me. Suboxone and methadone are opioid; they are opioids, and they are used to treat opioid addiction. Um, or replacement, they're called replacement therapy or medication-assisted therapy for opioid addiction. And, and they are pretty much opioids that pay taxes. Now, there are proven advantages to treat folks with those, folks that did not manage to stay completely sober, relapse after relapse. They are proven to reduce criminality, use of street drugs, improve quality of life, like big time. Uh, they pretty much allow someone who live with a, who's living with a, with a physiological dependence um, to have a family job, you know, love and work and kind of a, mm -hmm. you know. Now, if those opioids help people with opioid dependence and benzodiazepines are pretty similar to alcohol, then taking benzos should help you stay away from alcohol. Mm. That matter is amazingly complicated. Most providers listening to this will think of someone they know who has been on benzos and didn't touch a drop of alcohol in ages, right? Now, putting aside how damaging chronic use of benzodiazepine seems to be. The data for that kind of replacement therapy is not there. Mm -hmm. Nowhere to be found. I, li I lie. There's one small study, all I can find, but uh, hey, this is not a religion. If the data comes up solid, I'll start doing it. Here's another one. If cocaine and pharmaceutical uh, stimulants are about the same regarding the mechanism of action, then if I prescribe Adderall to a patient addicted to cocaine or meth, the patient may be able to avoid relapses. Again, the evidence is not there. A meta, there was a meta-analysis run by Cochrane Reviews shows that the evidence is insufficient to justify it, if anything. You know, we, we have data to justify this, this sort of a rationale. And, and, and if anything, we have data saying otherwise, that treating patients with ADHD and substance use disorders do not reduce relapses. For that population specifically, it reduces criminality, but then again, we have options that are non-stimulants with similar response rates, but do, does not reduce relapses or use of street drugs, which also supports the point I have made before stating that self-medication is just an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. Interconvulsants also bind to GABA, GABA receptors in the brain, right? So they, would, they should be useful in treating alcohol by, by the same rationale, right? If you bind to this receptor, then you should know if I give you, like, say, well, gabapentin or carbo or whatever, you're not going to... You're not gonna uh, drink booze and, 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 and no. There's, there's one positive study for gabapentin, which is a, also a drug of abuse, and, 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 and that's it. There's no more evidence, uh, not solid. In, uh, there's um, a, a meta-analysis reviewing anticonvulsants for alcohol use disorder that failed to show results. So, so, and that's what we call pathophysiological thinking. You think, okay, if, if opioids are good for these guys, then benzo should be good for those guys. And, and yeah, the thought is fair, but we looked into it and the answer is no. Right. Now, moving away from the medication-assisted treatment of addiction, um, do you think the use of benzodiazepines and PTSD also exemplifies this kind of rationale? Yeah, good point. So, so benzos have been around for decades, right? Mm -hmm. uh, acutely, they are God-sent medication for anxiety. But with chronic use, the measurable effects on anxiety dissipate within a month or two months. Mm -hmm. Now, at least initially, you take it, relax. Now, PTSD is largely an anxiety syndrome, 
a few years back, uh, all the bets were off, and uh, you know, it was a fair assumption to believe that benzos will help patients with PTSD. Now we know that only does not help, not only doesn't help, it likely makes it worse and prevents what we would call the, we could call it time healing, you know, in addition to hamper the results of psychotherapy. Listen to this, benzodiazepines, okay, it, they help with anxiety. This guy is freaking out, here, pop it, right? Fair thought, but once you look to the data, it's not there, and if anything in this case is the opposite, it goes as far as preventing improvement of other treatments that will be you know, achieved by other treatments. Right. And, and, and that's the pathophysiological rationale that I, that I mentioned before. You know. So at the end of the day, just use guidelines, right? So <laughs> yeah, and, and, and we should use guidelines to start. You know, start with a guideline, and once all those options have failed, then you can carefully get creative. In other words, if, if it looks like a horse, you treat like a horse. There's, there's no freaking individualized treatments in this field. The repetitive failures will tell you that the, the, the presentation is not a horse, it's a unicorn. Then, then you should have a little bit more freedom, get a little bit more creative. And I think in the future we should maybe look into um, refractory presentations just to not to cover all the reasons for refractory presentations, but so the listener realizes that it's not because he failed an antidepressant that is a uh, treatment-resistant depression. Uh, other things may present in different ways, and you think you're treating a depression, and you're not. You can be treating a personality disorder, you can treat a miserable life, and, and those are different things to be looked into. So um, maybe, maybe, maybe we're going to work on some episodes just to cover, just just to share some insight on refractoriness, uh, as because we also received a few emails requesting it. Oh, awesome! Very good, Doctor Nadi. Okay, so I think that was a wrap for today's episode. I also would like to invite the listeners to check out our website, nepmi.org. Doctor Nadi, thank you so much for being here. Any other final messages for the listeners today? So if you want to check uh, some content, we also have on Instagram under psych.experience. More simple uh, stuff like snippets on medications and side effects um, be because of the how Instagram tool is, is, is not a, a good tool for complex discussions, but um, I would encourage you to take a look. All right, Dr. Nadi, thank you so much, and I see you next week. See you then, buddy. This podcast was offered by nepmi.org.